The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. My name is Justin Kempf. I write a blog at democracyparadox.com where you can read reviews on classic and contemporary works of political science. This week, I reviewed the second volume of Marx's Capital, my big takeaway from the book was Marxist economics is an inversion of classical liberal economics. What I mean is Adam Smith began his economics with an assumption of demand. Marketers and economists might call this latent demand. Production is then created to meet this demand. Marx, on the other hand, begins with productive capacity. Demand is found to meet production. This insight is the key difference between the economics of the left and the right. So while far-left economics fail when they refuse to acknowledge a role for demand, like in the Soviet Union, where there was both overproduction of some commodities and shortages of others, neoliberal economics has begun to show a similar flaw when it ignores the importance of production and labor. Some have argued this is the cause for the rise of populism throughout the world. Today, I have with me the scholar Takis Papas. He is the author of Populism and Liberal Democracy. He's a frequent contributor to the Journal of Democracy. This is where I first came across his work. But he has established himself as a unique voice in, in the debate about populism. He is a widely cited by scholars who find they must respond to his ideas unless they are willing to accept them. You can get an overview of his theories at his website, papaspopulism.com. So, Takis, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, some things maybe I missed, and what drew you to the research populism? Uh, hi there, and thanks for this introduction. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a trained political scientist holding a PhD from Yale University. Used to be a professor of comparative politics in Greece, a job which I quit a few years ago when my family decided to move to Strasbourg, France, where I still have my, uh, my residence. I have studied for many years topics related to democracy, political parties and party systems, and political leadership. I've been studying populism more specifically in the last 10 years and have written a couple of monographs about it. Uh, you mentioned the last one and the claim to have produced a co comprehensive theory about uh, all different stages of the populist phenomenon, including its emergence, rule, and aftermath. Uh, more recently, I spent my time as a researcher and writer. Right now, I'm in the process of drafting a new book on nativism in Europe. Uh, and yes, and I also blog. I have a blog which you mentioned, uh, papaspopulism.com. So, uh, Tak, the, the title of your most recent book includes three important concepts. 
Um, you talk about, um, and you, you even take a pride in the idea that you can simplify what we think of um, as, as a definition for populism. So why don't we start out just by getting that um, kind of clear, give you a chance to be able to explain what, how you define or how you describe uh, populism, liberalism, and democracy. Well, those are the, the three core concepts around which all my work revolves. And actually, you can find those three concepts, words, in the title of my last book. Uh, you know, sometimes we are unconscious thinkers. We, we, we think in a, in a very unconscious way. We do not know, in other words, what we're talking about. So what is democracy? What is liberalism? What is populism? So we pretend to know all of those, or what those terms mean, but we do not. So, yes, I do take uh, pride of simplifying, simplifying those terms. Actually, I, I give a glossary at the end of my, of my book on populism. So, to, let me be more concrete here. Democracy, when we say democracy, I take a very simple definition proposed by Adam Przorsky, uh, who is a scholar I, I deeply admire. And Adam has said that Democracy is a political system in which incumbent parties or incumbent rulers may lose elections. As simple as that. This presupposes free and fair elections to a certain degree, and it also presupposes that once you lose uh, at the at ballot box, then you have to go home peacefully, right? So that is democracy. That is very, very simple. And this is the kind of democracy, this definition of democracy applies to any kind of democracy from ancient Greece to the present time. Now, what is liberalism after we have settled with democracy? Modern liberalism, or what we call usually liberal democracy, is a historical phenomenon that we used not to have before the end of World War II. So liberal democracy is a, an advanced stage of democracy, which we got after 1945, which I consider as the year, the year zero of liberal democracy. So we had democracy before that, but it was not a liberal democracy in the modern sense. Of course, liberalism comes from Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, et cetera, et cetera, but it was classical. I mean, what we call classical liberalism. Now, when we talk about liberal democracy, we mean the democracy that was established after the end of World War II, and this is what today is under some threat. We may come back to this later on. So what is populism? Populism is a combination of democracy on one hand and the rejection of liberal democracy on the other hand. So I define populism very, very simply and minimally as democratic illiberalism, the negation of liberalism. So in this sense, populism is, is, is a novel political system much more recent than post-war liberalism that accepts democracy but rejects the liberal institutions. So populist democracies, in other words, always seek to overturn established liberal constitutions and replace them with illiberal ones. Take, for example, Argentina under Peron and the Peronistas later on. Take Venezuela, Hungary, Poland, Greece in the recent uh, past, Italy under Berlusconi, the US under Trump. So all of those are democracies, democratic systems, in which the populist leaders reject the institutions of liberalism, the liberal checks and balances, to be more 
you know, uh, size. Now, notice that these three terms, democracy, liberalism, and populism, are by themselves sufficient to explain without using any unnecessary adjectives the entirety of modern democratic politics. Why is that so? For two reasons. Because first of all, within a democracy, you have two facets, two types of it, liberal democracy and illiberal democracy or populist democracy. Okay. And as William Riker once said, and I have quoted him a number of times, populism and liberalism exhaust all possibilities of modern democracy. So democracy today cannot be anything else but either liberal or populist. So you have all of those, these three words, these three terms, three concepts that take care of an overall general analytical framework within which we may work comfortably and ask very particular questions and then go case after case after case and you know do some empirical research and produce good quality theory. Now I want to touch back on liberalism with you in terms of the way that you just described it and the readings that I've had from both your books and your articles. It sounds like for you liberalism is more than just a sense of political values but goes beyond that to include um, types of institutions and the way those institutions interact. Am I reading this correctly? Uh, liberalism. Liberalism is, is an idea, first of all, okay, it begins somewhere you know, after the French Revolution, I guess, and it evolves. But liberalism is a historical phenomenon. Now, what, what do we mean by liberalism today? Okay, let us not talk about you know, Adam Smith, for example, or the other classical liberals. But let us be kind of very practical here. Um, some students ask me about that, and the way I explain liberalism is that, look guys, it is three, liberalism has post-war liberalism in what we call the Western world, right? Which includes Europe, the Americas, uh, Australia, Japan, Canada, uh, New Zealand, etc. after the Second World War, has three elements. And those three elements are highly interrelated. It is, first of all, the first element of modern liberalism is that is the acknowledgement, if you like, that modern societies are divided by multiple and often cross-cutting cleavages. So you have many divisions there at society's level, which are class divisions, religious divisions, linguistic, race, uh, geographical, etc. You, you name it. So you have many, many, and we know we have, you know, we live in societies with many, many cross-cutting divisions. Secondly, okay, uh, because those divisions have to be bridged over, lest we avoid a situation of, of, of you know, uh, of uh, anarchy and anomie, the only way to do this is to establish liberal institutions, checks and balances, that must be obeyed by everyone in society, rules and ruled alike. Thirdly, and finally, it is believed that the only way to succeed in building those institutions and make them operational is through the establishment of a liberal constitution through rule of law, what we call rule of law, 
and the respect for minority rights. Now, if you have all of those three elements, you understand what a liberal democracy is and what modern liberalism is. Now, switch the coin, turn the coin around, and you find populism, which is the polar opposite of liberalism. What is populism in this sense? It is the understanding that society is divided by one single cleavage between the people and the elites. So this multiplicity of cross-cutting multiple cleavages is gone. So you get a very simplified image of societies being allegedly divided between the people and the elites. Because you have one single cleavage, it is impossible to bridge it over. So there's conflict. There is always okay, a, 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 a polarization confrontation, conflict, war, okay? Who wins at the end? The majorities, because they have the numbers in the democratic polity that populism still is. So who cares about rule of law? Who cares about institutions? If you have a majority which you have to satisfy in order to give you the vote. So you end up with the tyranny of majorities. Okay. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, this brings me to the next question I've got, which relates to something very important to your, your, um, your conception of, of populism, the way that you kind of set up your theoretical framework. Um, you divide political systems, and you've touched on this already, into a liberal and democratic dimension. Uh, democracies, like you just said, can become either liberal or liberal. But something that we haven't touched upon is that autocracies can be only illiberal. Now, you've kind of touched upon this because you've talked about how, how liberalism depends on certain institutions that lead towards democracy, it sounds like. But can you kind of explain a little bit more on why liberalism then becomes incompatible with authoritarianism? That's very simple, simply because the forces of liberalism and the various forces of authoritarianism fought against each other in the Second World War, and we know who, we know who the winner was. So, of course, they are incompatible. I mean, you cannot compare, you cannot put together liberalism and authoritarianism. Um, now, in terms of political systems, it is very interesting because your question calls for, uh, essentially you ask about how we can think about a taxonomy, a classification, a taxonomy is a better word, of political systems, right? How many political systems do we have around out there? And how can we make sense of them using those simple words uh, like authoritarianism or autocracy, which is a term I, I prefer, democracy, liberalism, etc., etc. Now, we have to follow an Aristotelian tradition here. Don't forget, I'm a Greek. Um, <laughs> and to think in terms of what, you know, and if you like Latin, per genus et differentiam. We have to think what are the very broad overall categories and then find such subcategories. Uh, we have to think about the overall genus, of analysis and the species of analysis. It's like, you know, if you think about, to give you an, an example, if you think about uh, a taxonomy of animals, how do you think about all animals on Earth? You may think about, you know, dividing them into, say, vertebrates and invertebrates. And if you want to further study vertebrates, 
you, you divide them into you know, fish, amphibian, reptiles, uh, birds, and mammals. And if you want to go one level below and study mammals, you may divide them into a number of ways, such as, for example, I mean, uh, carnivorous and, uh, and herbivorous, or those standing on two legs versus those standing on four legs, etc., etc. Now, when it comes to political systems, my, uh, or political parties, which is the same thing, uh, I think in terms, in terms of democratic and non-democratic, that is the first distinction I make. Now, if you think about non-democratic ones, non-democratic systems, you have further distinctions there between authoritarianism, totalitarianism, sultanism. Uh, you have a number of, of subcategories there. And if you come to democratic systems, democracies, as I said, you have two types of democracy. You have liberal democracies and illiberal democracies, populist democracies. Now, you can you may go even further down and break, you know, the liberal category of democracies into more or liberal category of parties, political parties, into further distinctions and talk there about nativist parties, regionalist parties, uh, nationalist parties, etc. So you have you have the distinction between you have two basic distinctions to to sum it up. One between democratic and non-democratic parties, and the other between liberal within the democratic fold, between liberal and illiberal parties. No, no, that's uh, the the thing though that that kind of captures my imagination a little bit when we talk about this taxonomy is um, a book I recently read was by uh, Anne Applebaum. Um, I think it's out now. It might be coming out next month. It's uh, Twilight of Democracy. And, and she's not a theorist. She's more of a journalist, but uh, she's a very deep thinker um, in her approach. And one of the things that, that I found interesting and that captured my imagination when I read the book was how she describes people in Poland uh, as well as the United Kingdom and the United States that she knew on the conservative right movement that originated by fighting authoritarianism in, in the Soviet Union and Russia and were standing for freedom uh, for a long time, but now have shifted to this sort of um, populism that borders or even crosses the line, depending on where, you're, where you live, into authoritarianism. And it's interesting. My father is another good example. He, as I grew up, he was a libertarian. I was raised as a libertarian, which is a radical form of, of believing in limited government. And yet, um, as I grew older and as the years went by, he's, he shifted to embrace the Republican Party as they began to talk about that. But as Donald Trump emerged, who is an illiberal uh, you you define him as a populist and have a great piece on your blog about that. Um, he's he's no longer devoting himself to the sense of of human rights and individual freedoms the way that my father used to talk about stuff. Now he's talking about it from a different aspect. The question for me kind of falls into the taxonomy. Like, is it that a person transforms themselves over time? from being a liberal 
to being a populist when you make that shift? Or is it that they believe, like my father says he continues to believe in individual freedoms. It just seems he wants to impose them by putting limitations upon democracy itself. So I don't know. I mean, it's one of those, those chicken in the, it's one of those difficulties with classifications. So um, I guess I'm kind of throwing out the idea that as you're looking at people that have kind of changed in their political beliefs and have kind of shifted, do you see anything in terms of the ability that some people want to impose their liberal ideas upon people through limitations upon democracy? Or do you think that that truly becomes a shift into populism and inevitably authoritarianism? Well, I guess you're asking too many things here. Sorry. Too many, <laughs> too many topics uh, piled upon each other, which is very interesting, though. Um, I know Applebaum's work. I've not read her recent book. I've ordered that, in fact. Um, listen, one thing here is that positions are not, positions of, of parties and political systems are not, con, are, are not stable. So parties may move from one position to the other, from one class to the other. We have many, many examples of that. Think about the French Front National, right? Under Father Le Pen, it was a racist party back in the 70s. Now it tries under, you know, the leadership of his daughter to de-demonize, as it says. Think about um, Venezuela. I mean, uh, Chavez's party was a populist party. Now the same party under... Um, Maduro has moved to an authoritarian, autocratic uh, 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 um, uh, dimension. Uh, think about other parties that may remain the same, but maintain their ideological positions. Think about justicialism in Argentina, right? Whereas the same party under different leaders, the Kirchners, Nestor and Cristina, has moved to the left. Liberal parties that have turned populist in my country, Greece, and populist parties that have gone back to liberalism, as uh, currently is happening with New Democracy, the ruling party. It used to be a populist party for uh, a long period of, 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 of time, of years. Now it is fully liberal, back again to, the, to its origins. Um, so parties change positions, uh, or positions are not stable, are never stable. Now, people, your father, the same happened with the, or happens with the Republican Party. The Republican Party used to be a liberal party when your father was younger, I guess, but mm -hmm. it is a fully populist party under Trump's control these days. I do not know what will happen in the future, to tell you the truth, no one knows, but you see what happened to the JOP under Trump's leadership. So essentially he took control of the party and he pushed it towards a very, very illiberal populist direction. Now, the other thing that I wanted to say while I was listening to you is that we, as unconscious, the unconscious thinkers that we are, we tend to lump different parties together under the same category without good justification. For, so, for example, you began mentioning um, uh, Great Britain, the United States and Orban. You have three different phenomena here. Mm -hmm. In the United States, Brexit was about nationalism. I mean, the UKIP party, Nigel Farage, 
and the nativists around him and or nationalists around him, they just wanted to, to take back control from Brussels. So they wanted the United Kingdom to be independent from the European Union. That is a very clear expression of nationalism as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Great Britain as um, an independent nation. Um, Orban is a populist leader. He has been in power for 10 years consecutively now, by now, and he has changed the constitution to an illiberal direction and he is an illiberal leader. So we cannot very easily compare those parties. Uh, Trump is a populist leader as well, so I think that he compares better with Orban uh, rather than with Noble uh, Johnson or Nigel Farage, if you want my opinion. I think Trump is not as accomplished of a politician as Viktor Orban, to be honest, though. Um, and I think depends we're going to find... We, depends what do we mean. I mean, they have both won a first election. Orban won a second election. Actually, Orban has won three elections. Yes. Two consecutive ones. Uh, Four, if so you count 1998. That's right. So yeah. accomplishment is judged by, I don't know, how long one stays in power, I guess. So let's see what happens, what's going to happen this year later in November with, uh, with Trump. No, that's very fair. Now, Orban has obviously captured a lot of people's attention right now because he's taken on additional powers uh, during the pandemic. There's oftentimes questions because he's, he's weakened the health service during his tenure uh, as prime minister and isn't necessarily always using those expanded powers to fight the pandemic necessarily. Do you believe that he has now crossed the line from an illiberal democracy, a, a form of populism, into autocratic rule? Listen, um, Orban's case is very, very interesting, and we may see that replicated in the case of um, Holland, perhaps. Uh, so what happens here, I mean, your question calls some, some thinking about what happens when populism, a populist party or a populist leader comes into power. Uh, I've written um, a, a good deal about that. And what I found is that there is, um, well, let, let us call it the populist paradox. We like the democracy paradox, but let's talk about <laughs> the populist paradox. What is a populist paradox in a sense is that this is that when populism comes into power in a certain country, and we've seen that in a number of countries, it, it, is, it is quite unstable. So it tilts between going back to liberalism or moving on to autocracy, authoritarianism, right? So it is very, very unstable. Why is that so? It is for a number of reasons. I think there are three I can think right now out of my head. Uh, of three important ones. First, populism is not an ideology. So it is not ideologically clear. It changes, it shifts from right to left, etc., etc. So it does not have an, an ideology to use as an anchor there. So this makes it unstable. Secondly, populism lacks a coherent policy agenda. Populism is very opportunistic. So they do not have an agenda and this happens because they do not believe in, you know, stable institutions to a certain extent. And third, populism depends on strong leadership. 
on its leaders strong uh, qualities or strong, extraordinary, charismatic authority. So for those three reasons, which do not happen in other liberal, ordinary liberal parties, which do have a certain ideology, which do have a certain policy agenda, and they do not depend on a single personalistic you know, leader, populism is unstable. Now, what happens when, when, when a populist party comes into power, whether that is maybe in, I don't know, Argentina or Ecuador or in the United States or in Italy or in Greece, there is a tendency towards authoritarianism. And we saw that very, very clearly in the case of, of uh, Hungary. Hungary is a very, very clear case of a leader okay, who, despite his country belonging in the European Union, okay, he tries to push towards an authoritarian, autocratic direction. And, of course, the European leaders, and particularly his party group, the EPP, the European People's Party, uh, give him a certain slack and he can do almost whatever he wants, unfortunately. But, uh, but there is a tendency towards autocracy, towards authoritarianism. Now, I, the most interesting part of your work, I think, is uh, this sorry, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I'm afraid I, I didn't answer quite your previous question, though. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, right now, right now, I believe that Orban classifies, classifies as an autocrat, because as of March, I think, uh, earlier this year, 2020, he, um, and because of COVID-19, uh, he did cross the line by assuming extraordinary legislative powers. And, uh, and yes, he's right on that dividing line between democratic illiberalism and autocracy. Now, what will happen next, no one knows, and very much depends on the, on the stance of the European Union, European Union leaders, uh, towards Hungary and towards Viktor Orban, but yes, you are right. He's right on the line between autocracy and and populism. So I, I was about to say that, like, like the most interesting part of your work, I think, is this understanding that populism walks a fine line between autocracy and democracy. Um, fine line might be a little too much but it walks a line where it's fragile and can, uh, can fall into autocracy easily. And I do like this sense of um, that I think it brings to light, or at least it reminds me of, of ideas that were brought up earlier by, uh, by a very well-known populist scholar, scholar uh, Margaret Canavan, who talked about, um, wrote a piece called Trust the People, Populism and the Two Faces of Democracy. And I think it's necessary to think of populism when you start thinking about it in terms of how it almost has two faces of populism, where it's, it's both illiberal, which borders on autocracy, but still remains democratic. And, and it kind of can cross, it just kind of goes back and forth between those two lines is very fragile and unstable is the word that you use. But I think the key that holds it all together, and we saw this especially in Venezuela, you mentioned this in your book, the way that it remained populist as long as you had a charismatic leader in Chavez in charge, but 
descended into an autocracy as you had an uncharismatic leader uh, under Maduro. So my question for you is, um, is about charisma. And you've touched on this already, but can you describe uh, what is charismatic leadership? Uh, yes, one of the most contentious terms in political science and uh, thinking about leadership. Of course, the, the word, again, it is, it is a Greek word, charisma. Uh, uh, the first use of that was uh, biblical. Charisma, charis, is a gift that comes from above, from God, and sits on the heads of his, of, 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 of the saints, uh, the sage people, etc. Um, first of all, let me say that my model of populism sits and requires three elements that are interdependent. The first element is um, structural crisis situation. So I need a crisis situation to, um, to, to start the process. Then I require some agency, which most typically is a leader with extraordinary qualities. I will come to this, what we call charisma. I, I would prefer the word extraordinary uh, leadership or the term extraordinary leadership. But, you know, we are stuck with charisma and charismatic leadership. It's not a great term, but, you know, it was used by Weber, of course. But uh, it is very misleading. Anyways, I mean, I need a, a crisis situation as a structural background. I need an agent, an extraordinary leader. And then I need a series of mechanisms which that particular leader succeeds to set in motion to produce populism. Now, the crucial distinction here is between ordinary leadership in a democracy and extraordinary leadership in a democracy. So ordinary leaders, you know, the likes of, say, Obama or Merkel or Conte in Italy today or Bo Johnson or so many most leaders, is, is that they they are replaceable easily, they are moderate leaders, and they are procedural. They follow a certain procedure of politics, okay, described by the constitution, by party rules, by, uh, by custom, by tradition, etc., etc. And secondly, they are surrounded by collective decision-making bodies, by party organs, uh, and they work in collaboration with those party organs through negotiation, compromises, etc., etc. So this is how leadership works in our modern parties, in our modern states. Extraordinary or charismatic, if you wish, leadership is exactly the opposite of that. So we have leaders here who pursue a radical political program. So radicalism, political radicalism becomes very, very important in the political uh, agendas. And then they have full, they, they, they implement, they materialize this radicalism through their full control, personal control over a party or a movement which they have created most of the times. So if you think about charismatic leaders, the likes of Chavez, of, uh, of Margaret Thatcher, of De Gaulle, of, I can mention a number of them, uh, is people, men and women, 
from the left, the right, good guys, bad guys, I don't care about that. What I care about is that all of those men and women pursue a radical program, a radical political program, they break through, they change the constitutions in their societies, in their politics, in their nations, through the control, through the, the leading a party or a movement, a political organization of their own making or of their own control. So Thatcher, for example, she did not, of course, create the, the Tories, but she got full control over that party. The same happened with Trump, by the way. But most of those charismatic leaders have created, have forged, have, have founded their own parties, which they have led uh, until the end of their lives. Now, uh, now, given that populism as a democratic and illiberal project is always radical, in the context of post-war liberal democracy, a successful populist leader is the one who pursues that radical program, okay, based on his or her controlling a mass political party, which in most cases uh, she or he have created. So charisma, in this sense, makes lots of sense, okay, for understanding, in understanding populism. And I found in my work that there is not a single successful populist party without a charismatic leader who has those two qualities, radicalism and personalism over a party. Not a single one. I, I think that the way that I think of charisma, I think it goes even deeper in terms of, um, I think of, you touched on this too, so I don't think that we're, far apart if any at all but i think of uh charisma also as being the ability well i think of first ordinary leadership as being you're you're deriving your sense of power your sense of authority authority is the better word through the institutions themselves the institutions are where people see you as a leader because the institutions have have named you as the leader however however you came to power Charismatic leadership is the ability to transcend those institutions so that you can redefine them or define them to begin with. And I think that that's the reason why it's necessary for populism in a liberal democracy to have a populist leader be charismatic because you have that leader by definition is trying to transform institutions. Therefore he has to be, he or she has to be charismatic, um, which I want to kind of come back a little bit in terms of that concept and delve deeper into it because I don't think charismatic leadership has to be nefarious in terms of being um, like a populist that's trying to undermine the institutions. I think it's necessary for new regimes if they're going to be successful oftentimes to have a, a charismatic leader because you're trying to define norms, traditions, and even the institutions themselves. So I'd like to kind of get your take on, would you describe George Washington as a charismatic leadership, therefore? Charismatic leader. Well, you're right. I mean, uh, not all charismatic leaders are populist, of course. There are many liberal leaders who are charismatic, they've been charismatic. It is a rare occurrence in history. I mean, charismatic leaders are not, are, are not very uh, frequent in history. It is a very rare phenomenon. Weber was very clear in stating uh, so. 
So one way before coming to Washington, uh, the best example of charismatic leadership is uh, Charles de Gaulle, General de Gaulle. I mean, he was the one who changed the face of French politics and he, he organized the transition from the Fourth to the Fifth Republic. He created his own party and he pursued that radical program of uh, modernizing French uh, politics. I, I, to speak on de Gaulle for just a second, I think people forget sometimes how much people were afraid that de Gaulle was going to completely undermine French democracy when he Absolutely went with, true. yeah. And I, people forget about that, but that was a very major inflection point in terms of Western liberal democracy. I think it was 1958 when he, he brought about the Fifth Republic, or am I mm-hmm. off in the year? Okay, yeah. Yes, or 56, uh, now, uh, not 56 or 58, I'm not quite sure right now. Sure. So I got, kind of, you got me here. Uh, he was a military, a military man as well. And, you know, people, voters in particular, are kind of afraid of military men because they present themselves in, in a military uniform to begin with. And, you know, um, yeah, Washington, he was a military leader as well and statesman. Uh, he led the war for independence. He served as, as the first president of the U.S., uh, he established the American Constitution, a liberal constitution, full of checks and balances. Uh, uh, was he, in a sense, he was not a charismatic, an extraordinary leader, because he did not control a party. Not only that, I think that Washington was very much afraid of party politics, and then there were many rifts and many uh, conflicts within his administration between Hamilton and Jefferson, I think, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. You know who, who in my opinion, was a typical uh, uh, charismatic leader uh, from among all American presidents, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he was the ultimate charismatic uh, because don't forget that uh, he led the Republican Party, uh, he led the nation through the Civil War, he abolished slavery and that was quite radical in in his era that was a very very um, an exemplar of radical politics and he modernized the u.s economy politics etc etc i think that lincoln uh, classifies fairly easily as a charismatic leader in my sense no i i would agree with that as well i was thinking about that earlier today how lincoln reflects um strong charismatic leadership as well to get back to Washington, I do think that um, the one thing that I think kind of marks him as being able to transcend institutions was the impact of him stepping away after two terms and establishing a tradition, not just in the United States, but in Latin America and many other parts of the world of the two-term presidency. And I think that in a way that almost transcends the institution because he established certain mm. norms and established uh, things that were based on the force of his personality rather than um, himself. Now, of course, Thomas Jefferson reinforced that if Thomas Jefferson had not stepped away after two terms, that that norm would have would have been lost. But I think you can define Thomas Jefferson or refer to him as a charismatic leader and a little closer to Lincoln, although you're right that Lincoln's probably the most... Um, is the is the most obvious example uh, in American history. 
I think so. But again, uh, Washington, if I remember, if I recall, uh, he correctly, he was very much reluctant yes. to assume the second presidency as well. Yes. So I think that he was, he was pushed into that by his collaborators, his colleagues at that time, etc., etc. But again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Washington or American politics. <laughs> in fact. To, to double down on your point about Lincoln, it wasn't just the fact that he, all the things that he did in terms of uh, slavery, abolishing slavery, reforming the economy. It's interesting because he, people don't realize this, or remember this, but he was the first two-term president after Andrew Jackson in the United States. And that's an enormous difference in time from 1836 until 1860. He had 24 years of just single-term presidencies. Um, partially because people stepped away, partially because people were voted out. But um, it's it's interesting to think of how transformative he was as a leader. But I, I want to come back to your idea about Perón. It's interesting to me the way that you begin you begin the idea of of liberal democracy. You said year zero was 1945. Not long after that, we have the emergence of Perón in Argentina. Uh, I think it's 1947 is, is his emergence. What's that? He is 45. Okay. I think, um, I think so. Yeah. But or, yeah, or 40, yeah, 45, I think anyways. Yeah. Well, here, here's my question in terms of that. Um, you see the emergence, uh, kind of the emergence of populism begins with him. Uh, even he, he's even earlier than de Gaulle, obviously, at least in terms of de Gaulle's move for the fifth Republic. Um, you, uh, but you also recognize in your book, you say this explicitly described Thomas Jefferson as a populist, but he's a more um, earlier form of populism. Can you explain a little bit why a Jeffersonian populism was infused with liberalism while modern populism becomes, by your definition, illiberal? Well, listen... Um... This is simple, I think. I, I think that Thomas Jefferson was a proponent of classical 18th century liberalism, mm-hmm. which of course contained many illiberal characteristics, slavery being one of them, of course. Yes. Yep. But I, I said, as I said, my, my work is concerned with modern post-war populism and modern illiberalism. So there are many, 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 uh, many types of pre-modern liberalism, if you like, but I'm not dealing with that. I mean, I'm dealing with uh, modern liberals or modern populists after 1945. So Peron is one of those cases. Uh, he was uh, he was the earliest one, actually, but I, I would not say that he initiated a movement or a trend. That was just, it, mm-hmm. he happened to be the first case of populism to, uh, to emerge in the Western world, okay, after the end of World War II. Uh, now, Peron, Peron is a very interesting case because he was a military man as well. And uh, remember, in the 1940s, Latin America was, uh, was uh, a region full of military men, men on horsebacks. And uh, they were very prone, and they liked very much to organize coups and take power by coup, etc., etc. But Peron, although he could do that, he chose not to. He chose to organize elections. Now, 
The interesting question in my mind while I was studying Argentina uh, was why? Why did he why did he try to get power by by the ballot and not by bullet by organizing a military coup? Okay. My answer to that was that Peron, being he who was and the positions that he controlled at that time, he was able to distribute mass uh, clientelistic benefits to lots, lots of people, Argentinians. Okay, so he was a master of clientelistic politics, and uh, he was he was loved by huge constituencies in Argentinian society at that time. So Peron decides to organize an election because he knew that he would win that election by a great margin, as it happened. So he was an illiberal leader, but nonetheless, he chose a democratic, he chose to win power by democratic means, right? So that is fantastic because Peron knew that the poor people in Argentina, the descamisados, uh, would vote massively for his, for his new party, the Justicialist Party, which he set up right then, okay, and there, and he won power. And this party has been in power since then, uh, almost forever in, in Argentina. Uh, so Peron was a beautiful example of a, someone who was a liberal, but he played by the democratic playbook. Uh, yeah. No, no, that's that's good. The uh... and, and of course, Peron Peron is one of the most important uh, populist leaders uh, in Latin America. I think that he's the most important populist leader, and Chavez comes only second. And uh, it is a pity, let me say here, that people who work on populism do not have an idea, do not have any idea, actually, some of those about those historical examples of populism. They do not know about Peron. They do not know about Vargas in Brazil. They do not know about um, uh, what's his name in Peru. Uh, 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 yeah, I have a book here, Hagia de la Torre. Uh, they do not know about uh, European populism, early European populism, etc., etc. And that is a pity because we have a lot to learn. We history repeats itself, as we all know. Uh, and uh, if you if you compare Chavez or Maduro with Peron, you will find huge, huge similarities. I, I I would agree entirely. Actually, right now I am reading a book. I just finished it last night. Actually, called uh, "Campaigns and Voters in Developing Democracies: Argentina in Comparative Perspective," where mm -hmm. um, Noam Lupu and um, a group of people did a panel. Uh, survey on elections over in Argentina, and they just got a rock star group of Latin American scholars to be able to mm -hmm. put together articles on the book. But what's interesting is it gives you a strong background because you can't talk about Argentina unless you talk about Peru. You, you just don't, yeah, you just cannot. And the, it, it focuses a lot on the last election, uh, the, the, not this past election where McCree lost, but the one before that, um, where he won against uh, against the Peronists, and it it gives you you just don't understand how powerful that movement is in Argentina, and and it's even it's so powerful. Oftentimes, the two strongest parties in Argentina are Peronist, 
So you're a hundred percent right that, uh, that he has an enormous impact on populism, um, and just enormous impact on, on Latin America, uh, especially Argentina. The, um, now here's the thing, like you're, I, I completely, um, I completely understand what you mean about, um, the idea that Perón did not start like a populist movement. And you're very clear about that in your book. The, but what you do in some of your writings kind of hint at is the idea that the earliest um, country to move in this current wave of populism was, was probably Greece. Um, you describe them as having to move relatively early. You describe how they have a long history of populism since, uh, since they've become a democracy, and you have personal experience there. Can you talk a little bit about how Greece has shaped populism and how it's shaped your own politics since you have personal experience living there? Well, Greece... Greece is not the earliest case. Populism uh, in the post-war uh, uh, democratic politics around the globe, but uh, Greece is the first country in post-war Europe to see a populist party in power as early as 1981, and that was PASOK, a party created by Andreas Papandreou uh, only a few years before 1981, in 1974, which managed to March into power within seven short years and get an incredible 48.2% um, uh, of the vote. So before, in Europe, before 1981, uh, there was not a populist party. Don't look for any populism in Europe before that, there is none. There was only a small party in France in 1956 until 1958, created by Pujad, Pierre Pujad, Pujadism. Uh, it was a part, a movement actually, of small uh, shopkeepers, which was stillborn, it disappeared. Uh, that was perhaps the first um, uh, kind of populist movement, but, uh, but it had no future. So Greece is the first party in Europe that sees a populist party winning power. How did that happen? It happened because of a single man, uh, Andreas Papandreou, as I said, agency again. He was an extraordinary leader. Uh, he created, uh, structurally, Greece was a fresh liberal democracy at that time. We had a dictatorship in Greece from uh, 1967 until 1974, when the dictatorship fell. Uh, after, you know, the folly over Cyprus, etc., etc. Uh, a liberal politician, Konstantin Karamanlis, created a new liberal state. He introduced a new liberal constitution by 1975, which was not uh, supported by Andreas Papandreou uh, in a very illiberal way. So Andreas Papandreou creates his own party, uh, he wins in the first democratic elections in 1974, 12% of the vote in the second democratic elections in 1977. He doubles his percentage. Uh, he wins something like uh, 25, I think, percent of the vote. And then uh, three years later, uh, 19, uh, four years later, 1981, he wins uh, by a huge margin. 
And after that, he remains in power for many, 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 many years, okay, uh, ruling Greece. And uh, he, used, he was a very smart guy. He was, um, he, he, was, uh, he, was, he was trained in the United States. He became a professor of economics. He was the dean at Berkeley University. Uh, he knew American politics very well, and he knew American uh, prairie populism very well. So he had a fair idea uh, of how American populism since the 19th century uh, had developed. Okay, so it is something that at a certain point I want to write about. So European populism, populism in Europe actually comes through Andreas Papandreou, who imports it from his American experience. Think about that. So <laughs> you Americans are responsible for Greek populism and European populism in a sense. And I promise you, I will write the story at a certain point because it is a fascinating story. Okay. And Andreas Papandreou was a fascinating person, extraordinary uh, person. Now, Andreas Papandreou is very smart. He, he invents uh, he's very eloquent. He invents very nice slogans like, you know, Greece belongs to the Greeks, etc., uh, etc. Et His favorite one was, uh, or my favorite one was, that liberal institutions, I mean, he was saying in public that liberal institutions do not exist. Only the common people exist. And this is how he ruled Greece in, in, in a Peronist way, okay? Although he was, he was standing on the left, Pasok was... Uh, a leftist party, whereas Peron's party was a rightist party. So they, there's, uh, there's, uh, there are many, many commonalities between Argentina in the 1940s and Greece in the 1970s and 80s. So, so PASOK establishes its rule in Greece. It was a party that ruled throughout the 1980s and then the 1990s, etc., etc. The party is still there not that strong because charisma became exhausted. So trying to connect various parts of our discussion here. Uh, but the most important thing in Greece was that the other major party in Greece, New Democracy, which was the conservative kind of moderate conservative liberal party, the one that was created by Konstantin Karamalis back in 1974, faced a dilemma. Should they remain liberal or would they, you know, uh, adopt the populist strategies of Andreas Papandreou? And this is what they opted for. And by contagion, Greece became ruled for many, many years by two populist parties that alternated in power and they created the, condition, the conditions of the crisis that hit Greece in the previous decade. So, and this explains, I've written a book on that, this explains the, uh, the severity and the magnitude and the length and the duration of the Greek crisis from uh, 2010 to quite recently. So this is Greece. It's, it's interesting. Fascinating, fascinating case. It, it, it is. And it's interesting because you began by saying how populist scholars don't know enough about Piron. But I would say, I think you're the only... Or do they know about yeah, yeah. Greece is is completely overlooked in the populist literature that I have read. Um, you're the only scholar I've seen that's taken time to to discuss them. No, it is not quite true because uh, because Greece 
for good or bad, for bad, became the focus of lots of research in recent years because of the crisis. Don't forget that during this crisis from 2015 until last year, 2019, Greece was ruled by the descendants, the political descendants of Andreas Papandreou, and that was Syriza, okay, uh, the leftist party that ruled Greece for four years in, in alliance with a right-wing populist party, the independent Greeks. And that was another fascinating uh, aspect of populism, how left-wing populism may forge a strong alliance with a right-wing populist party and rule a country, Greece in this case, okay, without any major frictions between them for four years. So Greece received lots of attention. Uh, not many it's... people know the gory details, of course, etc., etc. It was sometimes it was kind of superficial, and sometimes it was very ideological. I mean, uh, scholars on the left were very uh, forgiving for this government. Scholars on the right were perhaps a bit too harsh. But uh, Greece, uh, Greece, uh, Greece is a, a fantastic case of how populism may evolve and, uh, and develop. No, I entirely agree. You're right that during the crisis there was a lot of writing. I feel like I, I don't see it come up as much anymore. Like it's kind of gone under the radar a second round. Your piece... Well, on... it, is artic it is articles mostly. It is articles, yeah. it is academic articles. But, and there was, you know, uh, articles in the press, op-eds, things like that. A lot of that. A lot of that. No, no, definitely. Now, um, I want to kind of just kind of swing back and just kind of to, to just kind of conclude. I'd like to ask you, um, you obviously have a very strong background in political science. You studied under Juan Linz at Yale, who is a giant of political science. Uh, who is your strongest influence for your political thought? Hmm. That is a very difficult uh, question. Uh, I admire many people. One scholar who has given me, who has given me lots of inspiration as a theorist, a methodologist, and an exquisite uh, writer is the late Giovanni Sartori, an Italian scholar who passed away a few years ago. He was professor in Florence and then Columbia University. Uh, he wrote about political parties, party systems, and democracy. And uh, when I feel, you know, kind of blocked in my mind, it is uh, mostly to his works, many works, that I turn to for inspiration. Uh, but let me tell you something else. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was at Yale back then as a student, I, I was lucky to have taken courses with some of the giants of, of political science, a group that included besides uh, Juan Linz, whom you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. Bob Dahl, uh, Charles Lindblom was there, James Scott, Doug Gray, um, well, David Apter, uh, Joseph Lapalombara, and many others whom I forget. Now, I, I have the greatest respect for that generation of scholars. So it's not individual, but it is generational for their wealth of empirical knowledge of the world at that time, that was, you know, the post-war generation. Uh, they matured in the decades after the Second World War, and they cared a lot about democracy. Um, at the time when the word populism was unknown, I mean, the word populism was not in the lexicon 
of those scholars. They, they studied breakdowns of democracy, equilibrations, etc., etc., but they never used the word populism. Why? Because populism was not there, which, you know, confirms my previous point that populism is a very novel political phenomenon. I mean, read as much as Lynch as you want, you will never find the word populism or Sartori for the same matter or any of those, of those guys uh, because populism was not there. And all of a sudden, and I know that I'm moving within parentheses now, uh, all of a sudden, all the talk today is about, you know, democracy is declining and who is responsible, what is responsible for that? Populism. Wow, populism. No, no way. So we have to be very careful about what we're talking about. Anyways, parenthesis closed. Uh, going back to that, uh, to that group of, uh, of intellectual giants, I was saying that I have, uh, I have great respect for those people because they, they knew their world, they knew, they knew politics, uh, and uh, they had academic power and personal integrity. I was, and I have been for all of my life, I will be fully impressed by that group of people. Uh, and that was a generation of scholars that influenced me immensely. And honestly, as I said, I find the younger generation of scholars like many of those qualities of that previous generation. I feel like that generation had an immense knowledge of, of historical, um, like where everything fit within history as well. They had a very firm background in terms of that. I see a huge difference when I read um, Samuel Huntington and how he's able to put together Absolutely. all of, yeah, all of the different just historical steps that brought brought the world to the point where where we were at at that time. And they also had a sense of the modern methodologies that were developing at the time. It, it feels sometimes like contemporary political scientists overemphasize quantitative methodologies and begin to lack a sense of historical context within it as well. Do you see that? Oh, yes, absolutely. And they lack, listen, um, we, we, we need to have three things to, to navigate through. I think one is empirical facts. We need to know the facts, what is there on the ground, and we need to know, we need to have a sense of history. We need to know how we, we, we got here, right, uh, during previous decades. Secondly, we need to have clear concepts. What do we mean by this? And what is the opposite of that, etc., etc. Clear concepts matter a lot because without clear concepts, we cannot classify our cases. And then we stretch, we overstretch the cases. That is a term by Sartori. He was very, very um, um, uh, sensitive about conceptual overstretching, and we do that all the time. And then we put all the cases together, we run regressions, and then we produce some numbers. But numbers don't say anything. Numbers are absolutely meaningless unless we give them some historical and empirical and theoretical substance. And we need to make sense of the problems that beset our democracies. And this is not easy. This is not a matter of you know, running regressions. It is a matter of identifying the problem, identifying the units of analysis, and thinking in a comparative way about similar cases. Because again, as we said earlier, 
history repeats itself, sometimes as drama and some other times as, you know, a comedy. So you obviously have respect for the older generations of political scientists, but can you name a contemporary scholar who has caught your attention today? No, that would be unfair to other scholars whom I will not mention. <laughs> no problem. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I, think, uh, I think we've talked about a lot in terms of populism and some of the concepts. Um, before we go, uh, I didn't get to give you a chance to be able to mention, I know that you're working on a book on nativism. Do you have anything yeah. that you want to talk about and just kind of uh, leave us with in terms of some of the insights and thoughts that you've had on that recently? Oh, well, now, uh, well, after all you have said, uh, you asked me about nativism, which is... <laughs> <laughs> the essence of my, hopefully my next book, uh, no, it is, the only thing I want to say is that nativism is confused with populism all the time, and this is, this is a huge, huge mistake, because nativism and populism are two distinct phenomena, and nativism, when, when I say nativism, I mean European nativism, and uh, it is a number of parties that have grown strong in Europe in the last 30 years or so, 30, 40 years, uh, mostly after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, you know, the last three decades. And it is a specifically European phenomenon which stands against uh, foreign immigration, uh, the, um, the further integration of the European Union and against the decline of the welfare state in Europe uh, which they try to reinstitute. So it is something quite different. I mean, uh, nativist parties and nativist leaders do not rally against liberal institutions, do not rally against um, liberal constitutions like Orban or Kaczynski and uh, like, you know, Papandreou before them, etc. Uh, they are liberals at heart, conservative liberals. Uh, they rally against aliens who want to, uh, to, 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 to dilute um, the culture of the nations in, 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 in Scandinavia, in Western Europe, in Central Europe. Um, so they're liberals, but they are liberals. They, 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 suggest, they, they propose a liberalism for the natives. This is the way I put it. Sometimes um, uh, people find it kind of provocative, but let's see how it goes. No, it's, uh, it sounds interesting. I've read some of your work on nativism, so it'll be interesting to see what it looks like when it's an entire book. Um, thank you again for joining. Um, his name, yep, uh, Takis Babas. He's uh, written Populism and Liberal uh, Democracy. Um, the, uh, subtitle here is, uh, a comparative and theoretical analysis. Uh, thank you for, uh, joining me. Um, you can, uh, as always, uh, subscribe to the, uh, podcast and you can, uh, read more, uh, of some of the books that I've reviewed over at democracyparadox.com. Thanks, Takas. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame.
The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.